All right, boys and girls, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. Um, Mia, I didn't even get your last name. Turner. Mia Turner. I'm, I'm, you guys know me. I'm, I'm bad. Sometimes I've had people on the podcast and I've forgotten their names. And I was like, who, what is your, uh, we have Mia Turner, an associate, uh, you working on what, what is your degree? Uh, marriage and family therapy. Right. And uh, so, right. And so you have what, a year to go before you're fully licensed and taking the test? Yeah. A little, um, less than a year from now, I, I expect to be fully eligible and licensed. Uh, but, and so I have you on because I'm fascinated with the work you're currently doing in the field, working with uh black and latino youth mm-hmm. um and and then is that the work you want to continue to do after you yeah um so my my client focus has always been african american or people who are underserved um right. who if they are served are inappropriately served um i'm very trauma informed in the way that i work so i like to to make my work very personalized um stay rooted in strength um, right. right now i'm working with uh, i'm contracted with the middle school in richmond and the majority of the students there are black and Latino, um, which is very reflective of the area, as well as the school population. Um, prior to this, I was working with mostly adults and families. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, so what, let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's get to the origin. Like, what got you into this? Because you and I, so first of all, she, Mia is another uh, person who came to a comedy show I was at, at Tommy T's with Alonzo Bowden, very funny Alonzo Bowden. And afterwards, you started talking. And I was like, "Oh, I got to have you on the podcast, Mia." Um, and you, and then we started texting back and forth. And you were saying that you've been in therapy since you were twelve. Yeah, I started going to therapy when I lived in Georgia. Um, I dealt with a lot of anxiety and depression and um, some traumatic experiences, and I didn't know how to integrate those. I didn't know how to respond. Um, I mean, even as adults, we don't know how to respond to situations um, that are too big for us to cope with. And I didn't have the resources to be able to, to, um, I guess, integrate those into my experience. Mm. Uh, So I found out that I can minor consent at 12 years old, and I went straight to the counselor and opened up that way. But I wanted nothing to do with this field in terms of my profession. (laughs) Uh, when you say integrated, what do you mean by integrate? Yeah, so um, think about every experience that you've been through. Uh, when you think back on who you are, what experiences have made you the person you are today? So when I say integrate, I'm meaning if there was a traumatic experience, how am I making sense of that? How can I weave it into my tapestry? Mm-hmm. These are all threads. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we weave it into a tapestry that creates the picture of who we are? And, you know, because... It's, it's true because I've had things that have happened to me in my past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that quote that who hurt you can't heal you. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out for yourself uh, how to make sense of that, how to weave it into your tapestry, as you said. And uh, and then that allows you to move forward because two people could have the same traumatic experience and one uses it, uses it to empower themselves right. and, and, and move forward. Another person uses it. Uh, as a means to hold them back or to stay mm-hmm. stuck in that story. Like, you know, Oprah's an example. She had, uh, she was sexually abused as a kid, and and I'm sure that that is fueling some of the fire that we see mm-hmm. uh, from Oprah. What, so like when you say weave it in, like what, like what does that look like? What did that look like for you? Uh, I suppressed it at first. Okay, um, right, like we all do. <laughs> right. If that didn't happen, we're in denial. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm bigger than that, and then... 
And I was very angry. Right. And I think that the way that it shows through for a lot of uh, kids that I work with especially is that they become very angry. Mm. Uh, they internalize it. They start to blame themselves, which is my story as well, right. which is why I have such a big heart for the kids that I work with. Because I look at each one of them, and I'm like, I see a little bit of myself in each one of mm. their eyes. Mm. And it's hard. Yeah. And at the same time, because I've been able to integrate that into what I've experienced and can fearlessly look in the mirror and say, I've been through this, 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 and this, and yeah, it sucked, but I'm able to say that I'm still standing. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be integrating it. Um, what was the question again? Uh, <laughs> I and and I, was, I was asking, like, what um, what do those steps look like? Because yeah. as you mentioned, like, the first step is mm-hmm. you're angry at over whatever happened. Um, and uh, but then the, what, what are the steps after that? Or, you know, was it was it journaling? Was it drugs? Was it like what what was that trajectory like for you? Because I think yeah. a lot of people who have had traumatic experiences, they think they're the only ones going through it. We all mm-hmm. do. You know, mm-hmm. we're like, nobody will understand my story. Nobody is going through what I'm. So I, I really want to demystify that uh, trajectory and, and what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was suppressing it and found myself just very pissed off and angry all the time and, you know, hating myself, hating my mom, hating my everybody, mm-hmm. whoever I was in contact with, I was taking it out on them. Mm-hmm. And I realized even before I started going to therapy that this isn't right for me because I was being self-destructive in several ways. And I was self-harming at that age, um, at 12 cutting years old. Cutting or mm-hmm. what? And yeah, cutting. I, was, I had um, extreme suicidality mm-hmm. and I struggled with that uh, for several years. Uh, but I guess what... what shifted for me was acknowledging. So it starts with acknowledging what I've been through, um, accepting it, which is really hard. I think that that's probably the hardest step, even before you have to talk about it, is just accepting it within yourself. Mm-hmm. Whether that's something that you've done to yourself uh, in the ways that we could be self-sabotaging or um, self-deprecating, mm-hmm. or if that means forgiving the other person, or you know, sometimes we can't even get to that step, but at least saying, yes, this happened, right. and I'm still here. And And so did you... When, when the event happened, did you share that with uh, your parents or anybody else? Or did you did you hold that in and only talk to, like, uh, uh, a counselor? Some things I didn't tell anybody. Okay. And that's what I think did the most damage for me. Right. Uh, is I, there were subsequent traumas. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just one. And I think that that's what needs to be addressed, especially w- within mental health, is when we give a diagnosis of PTSD. We're saying that this is, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's something that happened already, but what about the enduring conditions? Mm. What about things that we deal with every day, our environment where we live, uh, whether that's our neighborhood, in our home, things that, especially as kids, we're powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, we have no control. And then we wonder why the kids go to school and they start acting out and yelling at everybody, cussing the teacher out, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're looking for control. We're looking for something that we have a choice in. But when we don't have that, we feel like, okay, we can't tell anybody what happened because if I do, then what's going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. There's the fear with that. Right, right. Uh, so the, the post is, is persistent. That's the way I like to look at it, too, is um, like per- persistent traumatic experience. Ex- I'm getting my words tied. <laughs> Stress disorder. Um, and so are you, is what, are you doing anything to uh, – because I'm sure that that – like you said, we're calling it persistent, right? Mm-hmm. And so then, then that's something that I would imagine today you're still managing. Absolutely. And, and, and so is there a difference between what you were doing early on as a youth? Because how old are you now? I'm 24. 24. Mm-hmm. And, then, but, and then what you're doing now. Like, is that, is that looking different for you now? Or are you? Yeah. 
oh, there's been a major shift, and I don't even realize um, every day, uh-huh. you know, what what I've gone through, and uh, I identify myself as a survivor okay. in many ways. Um, but I guess the way that I deal with things is very different. But I, I heard this quote. I think it was Dr. Michael Stevenson. He's a pastor in Detroit, but mm-hmm. he said. Uh, your emotional development stops at the age of your biggest trauma. Um, And that really hit me because I was like, wait a second, that makes sense. Because whenever I get really upset or hurt, I go back to that place of being a little girl. Mm. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm 12 years old again. Mm -hmm. Because that's how I'm responding. I I retreat. And I'm looking for myself to take care of myself because I'm an adult now, and I, that's kind of how you got to get through it. Right. Uh, but I can't call on anybody, and I realized, okay, I also didn't call on anybody, and I took it out on myself. So how do we change that? So now I'm able to reach out for help. I have people that I can identify when I feel really low, um, when I feel thoughts creeping in that I know are not good or the maladaptive coping strategies that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know who I can call. I know I can call my current therapist. I know that I have a few friends. I can talk to my mom. I can talk to whoever, but they're not always there for the same things. Um, I just have a list of, of people. I have a safety plan. I, a safety plan. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I never thought that I, I, I had another name for it. I don't even know if I had a name for it, but I love the idea of a safety plan. <gasps> I also have a uh, there's a there's a, we're at, we're in a hotel room and you could hear you might hear vacuuming in the background right now, um, but I have a dry erase board in my room and I have a list of people I can call mm-hmm. and it's similar to what you're saying is like th- they're um, the who I call is for different things because they mm-hmm. can't all fulfill mm-hmm. the same and I think some people you know there was a time where you you know where I felt like. The, my person, whoever I was in a relationship with, should be that person to fulfill all my needs, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then you realize, mm-hmm. oh, well, that's I'm asking the impossible. That becomes I, codependent too. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because then when they're not there, they don't pick up the phone. It's like, why did you pick up the phone? You know, it's like mm-hmm. it becomes this whole uh, big thing. Mm-hmm. But and so your safety plan is you have a list of people you can call. Mm-hmm. And what else is a part of your safety plan? Things I can do. And so what? What's what's that? Uh, So I start with five senses, and I say, okay, what can I smell? What can I hear? What can I eat? What can I say? Um, What can I feel? I think that feeling something is what is really helpful for me, especially um, as somebody who, you know, received a diagnosis of PTSD. Mm -hmm. I lose touch with my senses. When I get um, very over-aroused and overwhelmed with situations and sometimes can feel very anxious, I lose touch with reality in that moment, and I guess you can say it's kind of a disassociative state. And I think that that's the same for many people. And the way that we often feel, especially as people of color, is we feel the trauma in our bodies. We hold the tension. We hold it in our shoulders. And I'm guessing that you can um, definitely speak to this as well with the work that you're doing yeah, with your absolutely. clients. Yeah. We hold it in our bodies. And I feel it, especially in my shoulders. I'm like, okay, I have a migraine. I have a pinched nerve. My lower back is aching. All right, something's going on even before I can identify it in my own head. Right. Um, so getting into my body again, yoga, uh, mindfulness exercises. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of tactile stuff, so I have a list of things that I can do with that. I know that I enjoy cooking. I might not even eat the food, <laughs> but the, the act of cooking and distracting myself and just um, mindfulness is playing, paying attention in the present moment without mm-hmm. judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's intentional. So if I can do something that has to do with being intentional and not focusing on those thoughts that ruminate over and over, then I know that I'd, I'm getting closer to, I guess, a place of equilibrium. Right. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I love about uh, hiking mm-hmm. and um, 
Sometimes I take helicopter lessons oh, because awesome. it it forces me to be present. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you know uh, when you fly a, if you if you fly a plane, you can put on automatic pilot and then you go muck about. But with a helicopter, you it, there's no checking your cell phone. There's no looking out the window. Like you are flying it from the time it mm-hmm. takes off to the time you. But hiking the same thing because there's wildlife out there. The terrain changes so you have to watch where you're stepping mm-hmm. so it does and and that, and that doesn't mean that stuff doesn't pop up because stuff definitely pops up when you get a a break or, or you know uh you could kind of like zone out for a little bit during the hike but it's uh, you're you're right it's like you have to find those tactile physical things mm-hmm. like right before you came here i was foam rolling mm-hmm. I, saw that, yeah. <laughs> I was foam rolling <laughs> i was i was stretching out doing my exercises getting into my body uh, and uh, and so you you have your you have the list of people you can call. Uh, part of your safety plan is getting into your senses. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when you say smell, mm-hmm. what what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so it's funny because I often say that I don't really smell things unless you tell me to sniff or smell or there's food around me. Oh uh, yeah, we're not. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. weird, right? It looks creepy. Somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people have more sensitive noses. I don't. I guess like I just will walk past and not even realize who dealt it. Right. <laughs> um, but what helps me is uh, I started getting into aromatherapy. Mm. And I have a diffuser in my office also, as well as at my home. And I know that certain oils, like um, I love lemongrass and eucalyptus or patchouli, Mm. uh, lavender, certain things I need a different scent for. When I feel, um, I guess, very stressed and Mm. like I'm holding a lot, especially after a session with one of my clients where I feel like I had a lot of countertransference or, Mm. you know, it's bringing up my own childhood. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, okay, I'm feeling really activated and I need to figure this out before, you know, 20 minutes from now I have another client. Right. (laughs) Then I'll put on that aromatherapy diffuser, and I'll put in some lavender oil. Mm. Um, I'll just stand there, and I'll just try to ground myself, plant my feet on the floor, um, get in touch with all those senses. Sometimes I'll do mindfulness with food. Um, Something is like a raisin. You can put the raisin in your mouth, and you feel the ridges, and you're just paying attention to what that feels like. Just that. I've I've eaten a million (laughs) raisins. I ain't never felt no ridges. Exactly. And I just had some raisins. I... Next time I have a raisin, yeah, I'm feeling a raisin. I do like a guided meditation with that. Wow! So I'll have I'll I do it with myself, and then I'll have other people, you know, take the raisin, look at it. You know, you're gonna smell it. What does it smell like? What does it feel like in your hands? Okay, touch it to your lips. Okay, what does just that feel like? All right, now put it on your tongue. Don't chew it. Just focus on that raisin. Don't think Mm. about anything else. Just that raisin. Don't judge it. Just be with the raisin. It sounds crazy and woo-woo, and especially when I do it with people who haven't done any mindfulness, they're like, what the heck are you trying to have me do? (laughs) But then you start to feel the raisin expanding um, because of your saliva, Mm -hmm. and so then you're noticing a difference in it. So it's like, huh, okay, we carry out day by day, and we do all of these things, and we don't realize that there's a process in it. Mm. Um, Can we trust that process? Can we just slow down? I struggle with slowing down. I'm always go, 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 go. And my mom would always tell me since I was a kid, Mia, calm down, trust the process. And I'm like, Psh, no. <laughs> but now I have such an appreciation and I still struggle to trust it. So something like that is an easy thing and at the same time very hard to just focus on a raisin. <laughs> it, it, right, because it's, it's, I mean, even, even like meditation, right, before you mm-hmm. came, I was also, I did a quick like, maybe 45 second meditation and i i forget how powerful just a few seconds mm-hmm. of stillness is you know 
I, I have, you know, some of my clients because I personal train also. Um, I've gotten them slowly into meditation. And in the beginning, I realized the importance of, like, getting them to do it for a certain amount of time just to get the structure. But what you over time, what you realize is that it doesn't matter how much time. It doesn't matter if you meditate for five seconds or five hours. Mm-hmm. It's about the, the, the consistent practice, the consistent showing up, the yes. daily... And that's what really makes a difference is it's not, oh, I meditated five hours Monday, but I meditate again till mm-hmm. or be mindful for another two weeks because then that, you know, that's not that's not useful. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that. Um, so I, I identify myself as somebody who does practice a lot of mindfulness um, and with meditation. Sometimes I'm praying more than I'm meditating. And I think that that's what's helpful for me. Mm. Um, everybody has their own practice. But that to me, spirituality is something that has kept me grounded um, ever since I can remember. But in terms of meditation, I, I was uh, in a doctoral program, actually, and I, I left. It wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> that's another story. But I took a class called Mindfulness and Meditation. And one of our assignments was every single day we had to meditate for five minutes. And I was like, well, I already know what this is like. Like, this is going to be a walk in the park. But I wasn't consistent. So I found myself struggling to just sit there for five minutes a day and not do anything. I'm like, okay, like my ADHD is coming out right now. (laughs) Like all my, I'm just feeling activated. I need to move. I got to do something. I got to tap my hands or think about something. And it's like, no. Just just sit there. Yeah. You know, especially doing it outside is more helpful, I find, especially for people who are newer to it. Finding somewhere like a park where you can not be near the play structure, you know, and just sit there and feel the breeze. Mm. Then you can focus on just that feeling of the wind on your face uh, or, you know, having the grass right there and you can just, you know, squint your toes up in the grass a little bit. You're, you're, you're still present. You're grounding. That's right. why it's called grounding, you know, right. if you can sit on the ground especially. Mm. You know, that is so true. Uh, uh, I had a friend, she went to India uh, and got her certificate. Is it certification in yoga mm-hmm. or whatever? Yeah, it's 200 hours. I'm actually 200, working on that. Doing it right uh, now? Yeah. Well, not right now, but in the uh, next few months I'll be starting. Well, mm-hmm. she mentioned something that I, I, I didn't know, and I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, is that there's in India there's three parts to yoga. There's the, the practice, the, the physical practice, and there's the meditation, and then there is the volunteer mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, our American practice of yoga usually skips out on the third part, mm-hmm. which is the volunteering and giving back to the community part. Um, but what I found is that meditating after a workout or a hike is is much easier to do because I'm just looking to sit down anyway. I just yes. worked out. You know, if yes. I, like I said, I did that 12.2. <laughs> like, like, to get me to sit down still, like, that's not a problem. But, mm-hmm. like, it, for me to meditate first is a problem. I need to get up, get moving, and then, all right, I'll sit down because I'm tired, mm-hmm. right? And then my brain just, it just gives into it. Uh, but you're right, meditating outside because you feel like, you don't feel as still outside because the you, the wind is blowing. Exactly. You hear the birds. You can you can feel movement, so it allows you to be more still. Whereas, like you know, this hotel room 
it's like if I'm still, it's too still. <laughs> right. And then it, it and I mean for me, I'll have like thoughts that creep in and I'm like, where did that come from? Wow, mm. that was a long time ago. And it's like, why am I thinking about it now? Now it's bothering me. Yeah. Okay, now I feel itchy. Like <laughs> everything is just ugh. And, and then like I'm an like, allergic this was, reaction. Right. This was supposed to be helpful and it's not. Because I guess for me, I feel like my brain can't um stay present sometimes. I mean, that's when you'd say like, oh, that's ADHD. No, it's my trauma. Yeah. Um, we hold in our bodies. We become reactive. Mm-hmm. That's why we say we need to respond and not react. And doing something like meditation and mindfulness is something to slow us down to help us with responding more. Mm-hmm. It's noticing first instead of just going. Yeah, because sometimes we don't notice um, the tension. in mm-hmm. our. Like I have some clients, and one of the things I... Two of the things that are hardest to teach them. One is how to breathe. Yes. Right? Most people breathe from their chest and diaphragm, and I'm trying to get them to breathe from their belly like mm-hmm. a baby. I blame Kodak. I blame pictures for that, <laughs> right? Because everybody holds their breath when they take photos, and now because everybody's taking photos and wants to be an Instagram star, every you know we're all holding our breath all day. But the, the second thing that uh, I, I'm always uh, coaching my clients to do is uh, to pull their shoulders down from their mm-hmm. ears and open their hands. Because a lot of times we hold, like you said, we hold tension in our bodies. For me, I hold it in my stomach. Like that's, I don't get headaches. Mm-hmm. Like headaches, if I get a headache, I'm like, something is really wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but my everything, anxiety, tension, hurt, discomfort, like all in my stomach. And that's why, like, I, I use food as as to medicate, you know. I, I hear mean, you there. Right? Yes. <laughs> I've been there. I'm still there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that pint of Ben and Jerry's will oh, get me. Oh, <laughs> man. I, 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 man, I kept Hagen dies in business for a oh, good... Yeah. <laughs> I, when they came out with some bourbon praline, I... Oh, man, that don't even get me started. It's good. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, would try. <laughs> I was like, I don't even drink, but, man, when y'all put it in ice cream, it's, that's okay, right? Like, that's not the same <laughs> as just drinking a bourbon. Um... I'm so fascinated with the safety plan. I'm really mm-hmm. mining this. So you have the list of numbers. You have your your oils that you, because you mm-hmm. tap into your senses. Mm-hmm. So visually, what are you doing visually? Uh, okay, so I, I'm i going to keep on kind of going back and forth between what I do with my clients and what I do yeah, with myself. Absolutely. I say, Love it. I say that I can't do anything with them that I haven't practiced and that I don't know is going to work. Absolutely. At least, it you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but... I know that it, it didn't work for me, so I might not want to introduce it to them because I can't even say that I can attest to the, mm-hmm. the efficacy of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes I'll do like a guided meditation. Uh, I even record my own voice doing it, and it's kind of weird to hear my own voice. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But I just stick with it. And I know that if I can do a guided meditation, you know, I ask my clients to, to visualize the perfect day or their safe place, or I'll even walk them through specifically what to visualize. Imagine yourself at the beach. You feel the, you know, the wind in your hair, the warm sand between your toes. You're walking towards the ocean. What does it feel like when you walk into, you know, sand that's a little bit more wet than what you were just on, you know, just walking them through that and they're visualizing it and I'll have them go and draw it afterwards. And so that's something that I do is I'll try to visualize whatever that safe place for me is or that space. And for me, it's um, the Point Bonita Lighthouse in Point Reyes. Um, it was, a, it was I guess, an old bunker, and then they did a whole bunch of other stuff there. It's, it's pretty cool um, if you have the chance to go up there if you're in the San Francisco Marin area. Okay. Yeah, that's my safe place where I remember I was 
11 years old last time I was there and I felt the wind, you know, blowing through my hair and the nature around me and the birds and the wildlife was there and the sun was beaming down and I just, I could visualize it so perfectly. And to me, that was a peaceful moment where I was like, wow, there's something bigger than me out there. It's not just me and my issues and whatever stuff I'm worrying about at that age, but there's more. So I'm able to visualize that and it, it's uh, humbling. And so then I can go and sketch that later or draw it or I visualize whatever thing might be ideal to me in that moment or what I feel like I need. I now because I'm a, I'm a horrible at drawing, but even if you're a horrible drawer, draw, mm-hmm. I don't know why drawer is such a tough word for me to say um, or artist. It's just still just drawing. It doesn't matter because when we ask kids to draw, they don't go, I'm a bad drawer. They just draw whatever you ask them to draw. And there is something therapeutic about I bought a, a sketchbook. Mm-hmm. And I started drawing uh, the house that I that I want, and you know I have no idea, but I have friends who are architects, and I'm sure they can make the vision. But there's something fun in just about you know visualizing the thing that you want, drawing it up, even if it's a horrible sketch and nobody else understands what you've drawn up. Just for you, it just puts you in uh, a much better space mm-hmm. than. You know, the opposite of like not feeling like it's something that you deserve or, you know, why even spend time visualizing it or dreaming it, dreaming it up. It's like there's something, you know, we forget about being playful. Right. And being fun. Like everything doesn't have to be serious and Mm -hmm. like this, you know, taxes and budget and, you know, scheduling. Mm -hmm. It's like there's nothing wrong pulling out the box of crayons and and just seeing what happens. Right. Yeah, and I encourage that as well. And I, I've even, you know, my work with adults especially, because up until um, this past November, October, I was working with mostly adults and doing some work with families as well. And I'd have adults who were like, I'm not, I'm not good at drawing. Like, why are, you, why are you bringing in pastels and crayons and, you know? And different medium has different uh, effects, I guess, on us. If we're wanting more control, I probably won't give you paint to use. Uh, if you're saying that you're struggling with control and you don't like things that are messy or you feel like your life is too messy, I'm not going to give you paint right away. We can get there. There's there's levels to it with expressive arts therapy especially. But there's no such thing in my opinion and in my experience as a bad artist because whatever you're projecting onto that piece of paper or that canvas is a reflection of what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your heart. I think that there's a unification of like your mind, body and spirit and all of that comes through with you know, the subconscious and the way that we express ourselves and how we interact. And in that moment, you're interacting with just yourself and that pencil, that pencil and that paper, and you can just get whatever on there. As a therapist, sometimes I will look at kids' drawings especially and start to notice themes. And I think that that's a testament to the subconscious and the creativity that kids have and that we also have as adults, but we don't tap into often. And even when I go look back at my own journey with art, I'm like, whoa. This is really reflective of where I was at, what I was going through. And I had no idea that, you know, a lot of my pictures at that age had sharp teeth. What did that mean? <laughs> and sometimes we don't have to read into it as deeply, but there are sometimes themes. And I find that really fascinating. Uh, you know, at, you know, what I find fascinating about what you said is, you know, depending on uh, what you're going through is it determines like the type of. Uh, medium you should use versus Mm -hmm. should you paint or should you draw or should you sketch should you be holding chalk or should you be holding a pen or should you finger paint you know like that to me is you know Mm -hmm. i'm not sure where in the realm like that would fit into things but or a body paint or spray paint you know Mm -hmm. that just depends on 
uh, what you're, because I've noticed, you know, my handwriting in the morning is always really small and tight and and, and uh, definitive. And then as it goes on through the evening, it's sloppy. It's all over the place. And I almost, I feel like I can't control my penmanship. So I'd rather just um, type the, you know, send an email or something mm-hmm. like that. But it is so, it's fascinating you know, how, where it's like, it, it, it lets me know that my mind is sharper and I'm more focused yeah. in the morning. So if I if I have things that require my focus and my attention, do it in the morning before the handwriting gets sloppy, which is indicative of where my brain is. And my right. brain is just mm-hmm. like, look, man, we off the hinges. It's like we, you know, you had two hours, three hours this morning, and now, uh, you know, the the cat's out the whatever it is, you know. So, uh, so that is a fascinating thing to like, you know. You do like a handwriting sample at different times of the day, and that is even a, a, a psychoanalytic tool. Is visual, <laughs> <laughs> looking at handwriting, and I'm like, I'll even look at my own clinical notes, and I'm like, I was doing a great job at the beginning of this this you know hour and a half session. What happened? Why am I all over the place? Yeah, and my handwriting will be almost illegible because I, I felt activated. Mm. Right, right. You had some stuff that you were, they said something, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. man, I got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you got to keep it down, and, and then it comes out right. in the handwriting. It gets a little it little nicer a, at the end yeah. once I've done mindfulness for them, but really it was also for me. <laughs> so we covered uh, in your safety plan, we're still in the, uh, the census thing, because this mm-hmm. is so fascinating to me. The, um, so we talked about smell, we talked about touch. We talked about uh, sight, mm-hmm. and then what? What else is there? Uh, we talked about taste. Taste, mm-hmm. and then what was what's the fifth one? Uh, uh, is there is a fifth one? Touch? Did it? we do touch? We did touch, touch, taste, smell. I think I think that's hearing. Do we do hearing? Did you, did oh, that's hearing it. Thing? Hearing. Yeah. Do you do a, a hearing thing? Yeah, I do. Um, so I mean, I mentioned when Auditory. I go outside, right? Auditory. There you go. <laughs> 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 when I go outside. Um, you know, hearing the birds or mm. even, you know, the sounds of the cars on the freeway or just hearing the kids playing in the distance. And I'll close my eyes and I do that. So I'm utilizing multiple senses at that moment. Right. But what I'm focusing on is what can I hear? And that's sharpening that because, I, I mean, I've heard that when you lose one sense, you know, the other sometimes becomes strengthened. And so how can we strengthen those senses even if we haven't lost them mm-hmm. yet? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that with experiences, sometimes we lose touch with our bodies, not just sometimes, but I feel like a lot of the times <laughs> with uh, trauma, especially is we lose touch with certain things that's dissociative um, and we're not as sharp. Like I've even said, like, I'm not very sharp today. What's going on with me? It's because my body is kind of out of whack or, you know, am I just too stressed out? So I'm not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they say, oh, yeah, that kid has ADHD because they can't pay attention. Maybe they're just not as sharp at that moment. Maybe it's also that they're going through some trauma and they're not able to get into their bodies and, and really take root of um, their senses and what their senses are capable of doing because they're focused on something else. It's a preoccupation. Uh, we get like tunnel vision sometimes, at least. I don't know about you, but when my mom sometimes talks, sometimes it's like in one ear and out the other one. Oh, ear. oh man, all the time. And I've gotten better at, at saying I'm I'm tuning out right now mm-hmm. and I really want to give attention to what you're saying. I just don't think I'm in it. And it's such a, a hard thing to communicate because it sounds so blip Right. But it it's something that um I'd rather be honest and in a moment mm-hmm. than to pretend that I'm listening. And right. then having to go back and be like, wait, what'd you say? And then it becomes this whole other mm-hmm. thing. 
It's okay to say I need a minute. Hold right, on. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because you know, I, part of getting in your body is uh, your environment. Mm-hmm. The other thing I encourage my clients to do a lot is uh, sit on the floor. Because sitting, you know, even though we're sitting on a couch right now doing this, like, I find that when I sit on the floor, uh, it encourages and nudges me into movement. Right. Where, like, when I sit on a couch, I kind of just, I'm done. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to get up off the couch. My thoughts kind of, bleh. But when I'm on the floor, there's a a energy. It's kind of like grounding, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you're on the floor in your apartment or your house. There's just something about sitting on a beach. I think one because it's not that comfortable, but it's comfortable enough for you to to be there. Uh, but when I when I sit on the couch, I just feel like I'm done, you know. Yeah. And so with kids, I think part of that classroom ADHD is they're all sitting in chairs that are not designed mm-hmm. for their bodies, and the classrooms aren't designed for. It doesn't encourage any movement. It encourages this at a, at an age when they should be. And then it's like ADHD. And so mm-hmm. uh, my point is, is like, you know, your environment, look at your environment, look at your office space, look at your house, look at, you know, your car, whatever, and ask yourself if there's a way you can arrange it and situate it so mm-hmm. that it encourages you to move more, or even stretch more. If I'm in a hotel room and there's not a lot of space, I don't stretch. I don't move as much, but I got a lot of space. So now I'm foam rolling and, you know, mm-hmm. like I just, it just like it encouraged visually I'm encouraged to move versus mm-hmm. being in a, a smaller quarter where I'm like, oh, I'll just sit in the corner and, you know, watch Netflix or something like that. You know? And we think that that's going to be more helpful, but it's, it's not. Um, yeah. And even with uh, like for me, I, in my bag right now, I have about like five different fidget little things, little tactile objects that I bring with me. And I look silly sometimes pulling them out as an adult, yeah. but it's like, if only you knew what this is doing for me in that moment to self-soothe or self-regulate or just having something to do with my hands while I'm trying to focus and, you know, type out my clinical notes at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, or having my, underneath my desk, I have like a fluffy rug. So I'll, you know, just take off my shoes and I'll put my feet on the fluffy rug. Then I'm still doing something with my body. So it's helping me still like regulate what's going on for me. And uh, I think that, especially with classrooms, they need to be more um, trauma-informed, I guess, and affirmative in that way. Especially in these lower income and, Mm -hmm. you know, the uh, demographic you're working with, for sure. It's What what are ways that you think that they can, what do you think they can do in the classrooms to improve that? I think they need to start with themselves. And whenever people ask me, and I've done um, a few panels and events where I'm talking about trauma and multiculturalism and um, how can, especially people who are in positions of privilege in multiple intersections, whether that's, you know, racial privilege or occupation, um, which is something that I hold and I realize, especially when I'm in a room, is which dimensions am I holding that racially, um, even like thinking about colorism and how that plays a role in all of that um, with my occupation with you know my gender and being cisgender um, and binary, what what can I do to advocate for people who can't speak up? And so I'll even tell them, you know, just start with yourself. Look in the mirror in the morning and say, what can I do to not just help them but also help myself? Because when we get reactive, we react on other people. Yes. We project that often. Right, right. Um, and I still do that sometimes. And I have to go, hold on a second. You're not practicing what you preach. And then I get judgmental. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that that happens with teachers as well. And I try to remind them that there are no bad kids. They are just like us. 
they're trying to make the best out of what they can with the, with what they've been given. Right. And we have to cut them some slack. Yeah, we have to sometimes put the books down and connect. If you can connect with someone, that's the biggest piece. They will have respect for you. They will want to do their work. Um, they will feel nurtured. Kids need to be nurtured. They, they need, need to, to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And, and attachment. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember I was substitute teaching once, and um, before class even started, these two boys, they, they were walking in, and, and this was a middle school, and they immediately started fighting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I pulled the, the – I could tell that they were equally yoked. You know, sometimes it was like a huge kid and a little kid. You break that up. But these kids were equally yoked. So I just pulled the chairs away, and I let them fight. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, nobody wants to say it. You got to let two people fight. And the other kids, you know, watches, and then finally it dissipated, and I, I, I pulled it separated the two boys. And uh, it turned out that they were best friends. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was substitute teaching, so I didn't know them too well. But then as I, as we start to unpack it, the, you know, because, like, to me, the fight was unprovoked. I was like, the kid didn't even say anything to you. He just jumped on him. And then he was like, man, my dad's leaving my mom because my mom was cheating. You know, he caught my mom mm-hmm. cheating on her. He's like, I was just upset about that. And then the other kid said, man, same thing with my family, man. And then they they started hugging, and they just, like, they bonded over it and realized they were going through mm-hmm. the same thing. And, and immediately they went from, you know, they, they started out as best friends and then had, a, you know, fought e- were fighting each other. And now they're back to best friends again because we were able to unpack, like, versus you two kids were fighting, go to the office, mm-hmm. and now they're suspended. And then none of what they're going through gets talked about or, you know, put on the shelf. Yeah. When you said that, I thought of several things. One is, okay, I see this every day. <laughs> um, another one is they need connection. And we, we deal with a lot of play fighting at my school, and we were like, hold on a second. Are they fighting or play fighting? Like, what, which one is it? Because yeah. either way, they need to stop, yeah, you know, before right. it comes into something else. Absolutely. And they're looking to connect, I think, especially with these young boys who are told, you know, sit down, stay in your seat, shut up, you know, uh, be seen, not heard mm. is something that I, mm. uh, especially, right. you know, in the black community, we say, like, be seen, not heard as Absolutely. children. Um, but they're looking for connection. Black, you know, boys and, you know, brown boys also, I feel like are often told that they need to not be as affectionate or that is shown and perceived as weak. Uh, and so they're looking for some way to connect, but really they're still kids. And, you know, they haven't developed emotionally to be able to figure out what is what and how can I show emotion even in a way that's not physical. Or maybe they're not receiving enough physical attention and they're looking for that. So with their friends, sometimes they do that to them in terms of play fighting or if that means that, you know, poking somebody and just being kind of annoying. um, They're still looking for connection. They're looking Mm. for some sort of a response that they can feel seen and validated, whether that's a good validation or bad. They're still getting connection. And that's what I think we oftentimes forget when we look at behavior. Um, I was also thinking of that uh, example that you gave as modeling. Like if they're fighting, then they're hugging, then they're fighting, and then they're hugging, that's also maybe reflective of what might be going on at home. Mm. They're learning that behavior from somewhere. We don't just do things. We've seen it or picked it up somehow. And maybe that's what's going on with the parents. You know, they have an argument and then they make up. And then it's kind of the same cycle. So even taking out their aggression on each other as loved ones, you know, that's somebody maybe they're identifying as, I love this person. I care about them. And you fight people that you exactly you love. I've dated Mm -hmm. girls like that. Mm -hmm. We're like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we're 
where <laughs> like I was like, I feel like you're intentionally picking a fight with me. And then, they want to connect. They she wants know to know you care. Connect. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And if you don't fight back, it's a sign that you don't care because then you're right. Because and they and they've be, become aware of it, but it's it's so ingrained in mm-hmm. them that they don't know any other way. Right. And so that's that's it's interesting. It's like because yeah, if we aren't able to get to it when they're kids, then they become adults with those same exactly. type of maladaptive uh, behaviors and coping mm-hmm. patterns. We learn to love and show affection the way that we learn to show affection mm-hmm. and love. That was redundant for a reason, because what we're seeing at home or we're seeing in our communities is what we inevitably are socialized into doing. It's a cycle. Uh, and part of that is epigenetic. And um, Dr. Joy DeGruy, she's amazing, but she basically started this whole thing on post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm-hmm. And how um, we can talk about all the things that we do, our daily mannerisms. You know, when you walk past somebody, you, you know, give the head nod as a what's up, acknowledging them. That's something that we've learned to do. And that goes all the way back to when it started, you know, when the first ships arrived. Right. Um, we can think back on, on trauma and the way that we respond to situations. And maybe sometimes we're like, okay, is it nurture and nature? Which one is it? But it's both. Um, in terms of uh, thinking about the, the genetic piece is they isolated the gene that codes for trauma. It's the FK and BP5 gene. Okay. And so they're saying that that is altered um, and it also can be re-altered in terms of how we respond and how we become hyper-aroused in our brains and you know, the neurotransmitters that are going off in our heads when we experience situations are reacting the same way that our ancestors reacted because it hasn't been fixed. So we're reinventing the same dysfunction. And even when you think about families that, um, like, I didn't always have my dad around, right? But I mm-hmm. respond to situations sometimes the same way that he responds. Oh, right. And it's such a trip because I'm like, what the heck? That makes no sense. And my mom's like, you're acting like your dad right now. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know this example. <laughs> but it's because, you know, the gene was coded that way. But you can reverse that, as that's what they're also finding, is when you start doing that work, that internal work and being able to heal that and you start practicing, you know, they say it takes 21 days to develop a habit. When you meditate daily or you're practicing mindfulness daily or you're going to therapy consistently and you're learning new coping strategies on how to respond and be slower to situations, um, respond instead of react, you're recoding that gene. Mm. Um, Your cortisol levels are decreasing we're able to, to give that and pass that down through nurturing and then also inevitably the nature as well. I, I definitely feel that because, you know, as I become more consistent with meditation and, you know, uh, even, you know, I even stretching and doing yoga and, and just moving my body, I feel different. Like there's I feel um stronger, more empowered mm-hmm. because you start getting addicted to that feeling. Yes. The of of self-care, of taking care of yourself, of mm-hmm. being mindful. Mm-hmm. Um and it it's it takes a while. Especially if we have learned helplessness Absolutely. as our previous you, addiction. Absolutely because then you go, man, it's it's not worth it. Why am mm-hmm. I doing this? This is dumb. I'm, I I keep falling back. But like <laughs> it goes back to what you're saying in the beginning. It's part of the process. The right. part of the process is not that you're continually moving forward. Is that is two steps forward, a step back. It's trusting the process. Absolutely. Uh-huh. That over time, right. we we can uh, we can make the the changes necessary. And, um, and you know, nobody's perfect. It's not about being perfect, but it's just about you can feel the momentum mm-hmm. 
uh, of the shift changing. You know, it's like when you watch basketball and, and you're, you know, the one team is down 50 points mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're like, uh oh, something's happening. And they're mm-hmm. coming back. And you don't know what it is. Nobody can, but you can feel the momentum. You can feel the other team like, huh, huh, huh. And then they come back and they mm-hmm. win by like two points. And you're like, wow, that was a great game. Yes. You know. Um, so is there anything else in your safety plan? We covered the senses. We covered the the names. And because this is so powerful for me because I feel like I had I had a podcast episode called Suicide Drills. Mm. And the idea behind it was that we have a drill for fire, for earthquakes. We have these drills for when catastrophe hits. But what about when the suicidal ideations hit? Because they hit me out of the blue. Yeah. Or seemingly out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, I'm like, what What do I do? How do I get out of this? It's scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking around, and there's no... no, there's no fire extinguisher. There's no breaking the glass fire extinguisher, so to speak. I can't get up under a desk for this thing. Mm-hmm. And and so I've slowly put together my own, you know, suicide drill and and you know, uh which I've talked about in uh in that in that podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know, to hear what you do is is fascinating to me and I'm sure it's very helpful uh to the listeners. So besides the the people that you call. Now, let me ask you this. What the people that you call because, you know, 50% of people who have completed suicide have never made the phone call to the mm-hmm. 800 number. Mm-hmm. So clearly we have, a, we have an issue with calling someone and reaching out for help. Mm-hmm. It's the acceptance of, like, I'm in this situation and I don't know what to do. It's the lack of control and just feeling absolutely helpless and acknowledging that and calling somebody and saying, can you help me is a big deal, especially for somebody who, you know, other people rely on frequently. Yeah. I feel like that's that's something that I struggled with is, you know, people need me to help them. Who am I to call on somebody when I need a hand? Wow. So it's okay to say no. Boundaries. That's the other thing on my list. Boundaries. Mm -hmm. What is I I got two two (laughs) questions. I know. Go for it. All right. (laughs) The first question is, when you call somebody, what do you say? How do you say, I feel helpless, help me? Or is there, what, what do, you, or do you have a different thing you say depending on who you call or what? Yeah. Um, I usually, knowing myself, um, I usually start with, how are you? What are you doing? You know, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, are you able to talk right now? Like, right. Yeah. Like, let, let's just small talk for a second so I can just kind of ease this in and then drop the nugget of, yeah. Everything sucks right now. I need help. Mm. I need, you You know, we, can we go get some ice cream? Can we just go for a walk? Can I come over? You know, I need, I need some help. Um, and I was in a place um, 2017, 17, 18, where I was going through it. Um, and I had a couple of friends that I knew that I could call for anything. One of who lives in um, L.A., in the L.A. area. She's in Fontana. And we don't get to see each other very often, but she was my college roommate. So she's known me for a long time. Uh, This is somebody that I know I can call and be like sobbing uncontrollably um, and just like, please just talk to me. And she'll just be with me right there. Mm. Uh, And we're not able to be in person. And I think that that's the big part about connection and trust is if you can trust somebody and you at least have one person that you can call on for just, you know, if they can just sit there while you cry on the Mm. phone. Mm. I think that that does a lot. 
Um, so sometimes it's like that. Other Somebody times, who just holds <laughs> silence, like just you, holding the space. Right. I yeah. don't. Yeah. I don't need you to to really say anything. I just need. Mm-hmm. I just need to feel your presence on the yes. other end of the line. Yeah. And I'm thinking a lot about kids right now. Um, and I have a, a client who I see a lot of myself in her with how she presents. Mm-hmm. Um, her diagnosis is persistent depressive disorder, but she presents as very sweet and giggly, but there's this kind of sad, somber look in her eyes, and she's 13. Um, and she, she, came, she was in the hallway crying one day, and I get a call from another teacher, and she says, oh, can you please go out into the, to the uh, hallway? We're going to call the little girl Julie. Um, Julie's crying. And I was like, okay, do you know what's going on? She was like, no, but she won't come into the classroom. She just wants to be there and cry. And I said, okay. She can come in here and cry then. So I went out, you know, asked her to come with me. And she's like, I don't want to talk. And I said, you don't have to. That's okay. I want to just let you have some space if you want that. If you want to go in the closet and get some art stuff, if you want to just sit there and cry, if you want a snack, go for it. Whatever you need, this is yours. It's your space. It's your time. If you want to talk, you can. Because if I give her that space and that invitation, she will at some point open up. But she needs to not feel pressure to open Mm -hmm. up. And I feel like that's what we experience a lot of time as adults, too, is tell me what's going on. There are demands. There are deadlines. There's, you know, how come you can't do this correctly? And, you know, having supervisors, they ask us, why can't you do this the way that I wanted you to do it? So we're even more critical of ourselves. So if we ask for help, they're going to criticize us. Duh. Uh, but that was just a prime example to me and a reminder to myself of it's okay to just sit there and cry. And can I extend that invitation to other people who need it? Mm. Cause that's what she needed. So the week after that, I saw her the following Friday and she said, you know, Miss Mia, I really, really appreciated what you did. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what did I do? <laughs> She's like, you just let me take space. You didn't ask me or tell me or make me tell you what was going on. You said, if I want to talk, I can, if I don't, then that's okay too. She said, I needed that. I was like, oh, maybe I am doing something correct. <laughs> because it's connection. It's not just the theories. The, the, the message is always don't cry, stop crying. Exactly. Why are you crying? Mm-hmm. And it's just, just to let them, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fact that they're crying is good. That, that means that they're a, a connected to some emotion, that they feel something. Right. You know, because the opposite we of that. We numb it, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She's not numbing it. She's she's expressing it. And that, and, I, and I'm just now appreciating the value mm-hmm. of, of crying, of feeling pain, mm-hmm. because it means you're alive. It's not that something's wrong. It's like, oh, yeah, this is life. Mm-hmm. You get hurt, dude. You step into the field, you're not going to step off the field unscarred. It's just yeah. a part of the, the process. The, you're, you're very mature for 24. Do you know how often I hear that? <laughs> uh, you're like, like I swear, I feel like, you know, because when I went through my master's program, um, Dr. Bowman was our, our chair. Mm-hmm. And uh, just old, not old, well, she's old now, but at the time, maybe she was in her 50s or whatever, uh, black woman. Had the braids, walked around barefoot, uh, you know, African uh, decor in her office and stuff like that. And like sitting across from you, I, I like I see her or you and her or her and you or whatever. Like you, because you got this very like, like I, like a like tribeswoman kind of like the like the people come to you like please tell us how to 
It feels um, like that. I, I don't feel like I'm 24, <laughs> and I laugh and I say that, and I'm like, wait, how old am I again? Um, and I actually found two gray hairs the other day, and I uh, freaked no. out, and I was like, oh my gosh, my body's catching up, or, or I'm finally catching up to like where my, I guess, emotional and my subjective ages, like Hilarious. in terms of development, like am I finally starting to get there? Okay, maybe I can accept it because I don't act my age. So let, come on, bring the gray hairs. Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it's... Um, what, how are you, would, well, I don't even know what the question, I have, I have a million questions I want to ask. One is, what are some of the things that, because you're working with kids, mm-hmm. and we both know that the, one of the biggest challenges is the parents. Yes. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, the things you're saying to parents or tools that you're giving to parents in terms of, how to communicate with their kids. Is that question? Yeah, okay. yeah that makes okay. sense. Um, so when I was working um, at my last position, I, I would do parent education groups, mm-hmm. and I would also do trauma skills groups right. for adults, right. um, and that just bridged a major gap to me. Some of them were mandated to be at the parent ed groups, but then others, you know, they would come at the end of the class and they'd be like, I hated this class and I didn't like you at first because I said, who the heck are you to tell me how to parent my kid? What are you, 16? And I had people say that to me and I was like, you're right. Who am I to parent your kid? I'm not parenting your kid. I can't tell you how to parent your kid. What I can give you is some information on child development, um, some information on communication and what these kids maybe need or what these scenarios could look like and how you can respond instead of react. And even bigger than that, how can you self-care? Because if you can take care of yourself first, then you can give to other people. You can't pour from an empty cup. And I think that as parents, a lot of times parents pour from empty cups and then they're wondering at the end of the day, why are they exhausted and yelling at their kids? Um, And I see a lot of that. Especially in it, right? Because a lot of your parents, I'm sure, are working two jobs or they're mm-hmm. working graveyard shifts. Or they don't have a job. Or they don't um, have a job. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I'll even have the parents come in and, you know, we call that collateral work because that the parent isn't the client. It's, you know, the identified client. But I view the entire family as my client because you have to start there. Because if I'm dealing with them at school and I'm giving them coping skills and how to breathe and center themselves when they need it or take a second to go outside... Look at the trees. I can't just give them that and then send them home. Right. And they don't have a resource. Right. They don't have a lifeline. They don't feel like they have any sense of control. Their place, their safe place, quote unquote, is supposed to be home, right? So how come when they go home, they don't feel that? And it might not be because the condition isn't safe. It might be because they feel like they can't regulate, um, that they don't have a choice in anything. So when I bring the parents in, and I have one-on-ones with the parents, and I'll just kind of be like, so how are you taking care of yourself? What are you eating? How are, you know, how are you sleeping? Like, what is going on? What does your daily, you know, self-care thing look like? Do you, do you even know how to take care of yourself? What do you do? And some of them will sit there and blankly stare at me. I'm like, yeah, let's start there. I won't even go straight to how you're parenting your kid unless there's, you know, an issue that's a risk factor and it's major right there. But can we just start at how are you taking care of yourself? Because if you can do that, there's a trickle down. You know, it goes back, I don't know why the analogy of, uh, you know, most plane crashes are error pilots, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. pilot errors, error Mm -hmm. pilots, pilot (laughs) errors, right? And I I I think, you know, it's it's, it's synonymous with the idea of, like, if the, the, if something's wrong with the kid or there's something disruptive, it's like, we only look at the pilot first, right? Is, Is the pilot get enough sleep? Is he sharp? Is he eating well? Because that dictates... How the plane lands and takes mm-hmm. off that dictates mm-hmm. that dictates 
the experiences of the passengers? Are we are the passengers like holding on for their life? Are we landing okay? That kind of thing. And I think a lot of parents think, and a lot of people in general think it's selfish to take care of themselves yes. before yeah. someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's like you have to know. And we're not saying have a spa day. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not that's mm-hmm. not necessarily that might be overindulgence. There's a difference between self-care and being overindulgent right right? Mm -hmm. um but we are saying is be you know do you need to you know fall asleep in front of the television Mm -hmm. do you need to eat processed foods and high sugar drinking i have clients who i've gotten off drinking even caffeine Mm -hmm. caffeine can you know um throw you into an emotional roller coaster but if you've been drinking a lot of caffeine every day, you may not even realize the effects mm-hmm. it's having on you. And then you think you need it because you feel like, oh, I have a migraine. I'm cranky. Oh, I haven't had my coffee today. Uh, you probably need to be drinking more water and sleeping Absolutely. a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Changing your diet up because that does a lot. Do you have a specific uh, diet that you adhere to? Um, so I uh, remember I was saying it takes 21 days to develop a habit. So yes. I've been a vegetarian for the past two months now. Okay. Um, and I was originally going to go pescatarian, but I said, why not just try to be more disciplined? Um, and I've noticed a major shift. Um, I noticed that I don't break out as much when I'm not eating processed foods, especially because you can still be a vegetarian and still eat unhealthy, Absolutely. which I was doing at first. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of good vegan cupcakes out there. Oh my goodness. The donuts. <laughs> Pizza. Oh, yeah. those, those will get me the donuts. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So I try to be careful of what I'm putting into my body. Mm. Um, I think whatever things are influencing you are, is really important because you, what you're exposed to, even like subconsciously, if you're falling asleep in front of the TV, your mind is still kind of taking those things Absolutely. in. You know, Absolutely. don't fall asleep with Chucky playing. Yeah. <laughs> because then you're waking up and you're like, why am I feeling so anxious right now? What is going on? You know, did you center yourself before you went to sleep? Did you pray? Did you meditate? Did you, you know, take those few minutes just to breathe or step outside and get some air? Um, versus did you fall asleep with, you know, love and hip hop playing and the reunions on and everybody's going at it? <laughs> That to me does not work. No, no, I, it's it's so it's been such a challenge to not fall asleep with the laptop, <laughs> you know, on top yeah. of me and uh, scrolling through Instagram. Uh, you know, it's, it's and there's a difference mm-hmm. in in how you wake up the next morning and how you feel yeah. for sure. There's even this whole like blue light theory um, that I'm not as familiar with, but my understanding of it is like the blue light from your phone or the computer mm. has an effect, I guess on your ability to sleep and yeah. have sound sleep and go through the REM cycle, which is what we need in order to feel well-rested. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's something to look more into. Uh, but going back to what you were saying about diet, yeah, just being careful of what I'm what I'm eating. And I know sometimes I feel like, man, I really need, you know, something sweet right now because I'm feeling stressed. And I give myself permission. Um, I think that everything in moderation is fine. So mm. through the week, I'll try to be more disciplined. But when I'm feeling like, okay, I'm tired, I'm spent, I need, you know, some In-N-Out fries, I will go and get those animal fries without a problem. And saying okay and yes and no is all right. Like, you can take the space. You can have the boundary. We we need that. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, and forgive my ignorance, mm-hmm. you mentioned cisgender mm-hmm. and you said binary? Yeah, so um, with... Considering, like, gender and how that plays into intersections of diversity. So cisgender basically means passing. I I identify as a woman, and I look like a woman. Um, 
I am not transgender or gender non-binary. So non-binary would be like saying that I don't feel like I fit in either one category, female or male. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've, I hold privilege in the fact that I am cisgendered woman. Born with the same parts that match my gender. Um, right. Yeah, and got expressing you. it all in the same way. Got you, got you. Yeah. There's, it's, it's so fascinating, the, the different language around uh, gender identity, because now... You know, I, there's so many kids who are struggling with that. Like, because now it's like, not only when I was growing up, it was just like becoming a man, and what did that mean? Mm. And now it's like, am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I am I both? Am I is there a, is there another option beyond that? Um, the transitory things like that. Uh, do, you, do you have kids who are? Uh, struggling with that or facing that challenge yeah i have um had clients that that deal with that um and it's it's hard to see that with kids Mm. um it's hard to see them really struggle with identity in any dimension that they're struggling with absolutely Um, and i struggled with my racial identities and looking racially ambiguous and kind of confusing to people and living in the south during my teen years or or in middle school i lived in the south so it's kind of like no one looked like me. You know, I'm, am I too white? Am I too black? Where do I fit in? You know, oh, I speak Spanish. Wait a second, huh? What do you do? <laughs> yeah. So I, I oh, dealt with that. you speak Spanish too? I do, yeah. Oh, wow. All um, right. <laughs> but in working with, you know, gender, that's not something that I struggled with. Um, so I can't relate as much. But what I can relate to is just what it's like to question your identity and how mm-hmm. do you fit in and how do people perceive you. The um, self-esteem associated with that and the suicide rates, especially among transgender youth, is extremely high. And it makes us question, what are they doing? What are they not doing in terms of the providers? Um, I feel like parents who have kids who identify and have identified and openly said, you know, I identify as this gender versus this is what, you know, I was told I was my whole life. Um, I feel like parents are becoming more diligent with seeking out services and support, especially in the Bay Area. There's a lot of resources. Uh, But I'm wondering what those clinicians and support systems are doing um like gender conversion is now illegal which is great um they can't do that anymore they can't send them to camp and tell them you know you have to be this because you were born this way uh but you know watching kids struggle is is hard yeah yeah um yeah it's it's fascinating that the numbers are so high especially like you said for transgender and i and i i would imagine it's just them feel like they don't know who to talk to or how to talk right. about it or how to bring it up. And Sometimes they don't know how to identify absolutely. or even where to start, and yeah. that's okay. And just coming to, as a clinician, I just say I welcome with acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, like, this is your space. Take what you need. Say what you want to say. Say what you don't want to say. It's okay. But just giving them the space to explore those dimensions of who they are, I think that's the, the gravity of the work. Is Absolutely. letting them explore and take the space, and if they they haven't been offered an opportunity to explore and not just say, "So who are you and how you how do you identify?" That to me is too invasive, um, and you should take more of an exploratory stance with it. Well, what does that mean, exploratory? Stance? Yeah, um, letting them kind of sift through how they're feeling, how they identify, how they see themselves. Um, letting them get into their bodies in terms of like, can they ground themselves and be present and just kind of take notice of how they're feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. Can we just start there? Not going straight to the root of the but, problem. Right. Instead of going to the labels, let's right. just sift out their emotions and then see what's left. Yeah. I feel like that does more help than, you know, oh, your kid was referred for this issue. So I'm going to make sure that I talk right about their anger right away. No, mm-hmm. connect first. Cause a lot of them aren't able to connect because they don't feel connected to themselves. So giving them an opportunity to find themselves 
and have just, I guess, a stable base to kind of go back to as yeah. a clinician. Yeah. It's uh, doing what we call a corrective emotional experience. I, <laughs> it, it, so tell me if this makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm on a dating website. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that a lot of women are asking, you know, uh, you know, what are you excited about? What's, it's almost like everybody's on this um, self-help interview kind of thing where mm-hmm. everybody wants to travel the world <laughs> and, like, not work from home. And so I feel like a, a lot of these questions are, like, like I'm on a job interview. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't figure out why it bothered me. And I realize it's because it's they're trying to. I feel like they're trying to get to a label, mm-hmm. and they're trying to put you in this, this box categories. versus connecting. And so, like, we don't know how to connect. So mm-hmm. we're gonna go straight into how can I label you mm-hmm. first? And that's exactly what it is. And I was like, that you just helped me clarify. Like, why am I? Un- why does this bother me so much? This type of oh yeah questioning, you know. Yeah. It bothers me a lot, too, because I've been on dating sites in the past. Yeah. Um, and I was like, this is really annoying. Why do I have to check a box? And I asked myself that question my entire childhood is when, you know, I had to do standardized testing. Why do I have to check a box? And they told me to check Pacific Islander. And I'm like, I'm not Pacific <laughs> Islander. <laughs> that is not who I am. <laughs> like, what? what? You know, because there's, no, there's never like an other or, you know, a multi or, yeah. you know, yeah. can I select all that I am? Right. Or, oh, no, there has to be one? Yeah. What? <laughs> and I'm I'm grateful that now, you know, things have shifted in some ways and right. also very stuck in ways in others. But checking a box, I guess, is something that they force kids to do. So they're already conditioned to doing that. And then as adults, we're still kind of doing the same, same thing. It's checking thing. a box, completing wow. a form, fill it out. You know, there's autocomplete. You know, I have a Mac, so it autocompletes most of my, you know, registration forms. And when I'm billing, it's like, put your card here. There it is. Just, you know, press that and type in your password. It's easy. Everything is already pre-formed, pre-filled, predisposed. Um, everything is just, uh, it's just pre. <laughs> it's already planned out for you. And you have to just assimilate to that yeah. and acculturate to it. Yeah. That, that to me is conflicting when we're in also a very individualistic society that tells us be unique, be yourself, express self-help, you know, but there's a way to do this. That's perfect. Apparently. Right. There is no, there is no perfect. There's no algorithm. Everybody wants the algorithm. What's Mm -hmm. the, what's the hack? That's the big word. Now what's the, what's the life, you know, even with with relationships and, and friendships, everybody's like, you know, what's, what's the hack and what are the ROIs and, you know, Mm -hmm. Esther Perel talks a lot about Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Well, if, if, if this is random, you don't have to, like, if you were designing a dating website, what would you, what would you do? How would you set it up differently? Oh, yikes. To, um. in, to in, you know, uh, because it is a bunch of checking the boxes mm-hmm. of like, you know, uh, how much money do you make? What's your sign? Do you want kids? Do you smoke or not smoke? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth is, is like, if you found the right person that you felt this connection with, you would put up with a lot of things you said you wouldn't put up with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just based on the the vibe that, that you two have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so it is interesting. And I, and I think that we are missing out on that opportunity to connect with somebody who we otherwise would, mm-hmm. who is a perfect match for us because, um, you know, they, they like friends and, and you want to watch 
Game of Thrones, you know, whatever. Some random, ridiculous mm-hmm. box checking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I honestly don't have an answer. Um, right. And I, I didn't expect I, you to, but I was like, if she, <laughs> if she has an answer, that would be amazing, you know? <laughs> yeah, because there is no perfect way to yeah, do it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, technology in itself is, is very, I guess it's what is controlling a lot of us. Um, I mean, the robots are going to come someday, right? They're already taking jobs at McDonald's. Oh, uh, <laughs> checking who? The jobs at McDonald's, oh, yeah. Um, Have you seen the, the, like, the screens you order on now? And, yeah, I saw a, a meme the other day, and it was like the workers at McDonald's were just kind of staring at the people making their orders. <laughs> like, what, what about me? Oh, wait. The machines are They're right. coming. They're coming yeah. for you. They're coming for us all. But what I'm getting at is that um, technology makes everything instant. It makes it easy. We can hide behind it. It's a facade. Um, it also has uh, given us, I mean, they say like Twitter fingers or um, like text uh, courage. Like when you're behind a screen, you can mm-hmm. say other things that you're not or that you are. And whatever you're giving to somebody is what you want them to know. You're only conveying what you want. You know, people never post their failures, or it's very rare that you find right. somebody that's transparent in that way. Yeah. Um, you scroll down on Instagram, and it's everybody's, you know, positive highlights. things and highlights and affirmations. We're looking to be affirmed. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the same thing with dating websites. We're looking to be affirmed. We, we want to present as good and likable and good looking and so we're gonna throw that filter on there we're gonna maybe spruce it up and look up some adjectives for some words and you know (laughs) make ourselves look um i guess more desirable yeah so the boxes are helpful in that way i guess for you to check what you do and don't want and i'm thinking about i don't know if you've ever seen the show married at first sight no is that on television it's good yes it's good what is it on (laughs) Um, I, I don't, I watch, uh, I mean, I don't, I cut the cord, so. Gotcha. Yeah, I just do Hulu and, like, things on the internet. Okay. But, um, married at first married sight? Married at first sight, okay. yeah. It's basically, they take a big pool of people and they have them complete all these dating apps and they do, like, a psyche eval and um, they, like, put them through this process so that they can find their perfect match. Mm-hmm. And then they don't see their match. They know, like, nothing really about their match except for that they're perfect and they know a few little facts so that they can pick out the perfect ring. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they have them get married at the altar, and that's the first time they see each other. And they, you know, they follow them through this little journey of the first few months. And I think you have, like, 90 days or something to decide if this is your perfect match and you want to stay together or divorce. And, you know, you're actually married. <laughs> and what and what is the, the divorce rate on that one yeah, within the know. first 90? I don't know. I just watch it because it's good TV. But yeah, <laughs> of course, is. my psych part gets to me, and I'm right. like, "Oh no, this is huh. <laughs> all right." See what you did there. <laughs> so let me ask you this then: with the with the with the psych part of your brain, because you know, to me, it's like building a team, mm-hmm. and it's all about like who you rec- who you recruit, how you recruit. Mm-hmm. Some some coaches are great recruiters, like the Nick Sabins. They they know what to look for. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you're that you're looking for that you're you're like are, are you are you are you looking at the boxes? Are you looking at values? Are like do you have a um there's this book called The Game and he called it the crap test. Hmm. Where it's like there was always like the one thing you would do to see if this person was crap or not. Like you were you were testing. Hmm. So do you have a, a thing that you that I do that, like in you, my relationships, oh yeah, or, no, or, not like crap, but a, but like what you know, what what are the things that you look for that you're like, oh yeah, this is this is what this is what I I connect with and what I want to build with. Um, in terms of relationships or at relationships, yeah. yeah. Um, 
I guess getting to know somebody as a friend first mm. uh, because you're able to be more transparent and real before taking that next step, not being intimate right away. Uh, right. I think that that's also something that, I guess, blurs lines and makes things a little bit confusing or yeah. um, lust versus love and how do you differentiate between the two of those two things? Well, what, what would that be, love and lust? How would you separate those two? Um, liking somebody and actually appreciating them and wanting to be with them for their attributes, for their morals, their mm. values, um, what they bring to the table in terms of not just their finances, but um, at their core, who are they? Mm -hmm. If everything that they came to you with that was material uh, left them, would you still want to be with that person? Mm. If they couldn't walk anymore or they couldn't perform the way that they used to in the bedroom, would you still want that person mm -hmm. in your life? Mm -hmm that to me would be more like love versus lust of, it could be lust of the eye and because they're good looking and arm candy. And we all, you know, like to look at things that are good looking, yeah, right? Um, and we all want to be affirmed. So then there's that piece. Then there's lust that's sexual. Um, and even if you're not being intimate with somebody yet, that still shows through in the way that you're pursuing them too sometimes. Um, or the things that you're looking at on them instead of in their eyes. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, or even like lust after their finances. And, you know, we would say that gold digging or you would just say, oh, no, they have great goals and they have a great job. Mm -hmm. You know, d is that really what you're looking at? Or, you know, if that was taken away and they worked a job that was making minimum wage, would you still look at them the same way? Mm. So considering those things. Yeah, and, you know, and, and none of those are wrong because some mm -hmm. people have mm -hmm. that. Some people just they're. You know, they're clearly superficial and they're honest right. and about it. And we need it. stability, right, too. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. You need that stability. So if that's who you are, but it's just about being honest about mm -hmm. who you are and what you want versus, you know, some people try to show themselves in one place and then as one thing and then right. you find out like there, there's something else. So mm -hmm. um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you're like that you think would be, you know, valuable um. to the listeners or? Or Every any resources or anything like that that you, yeah. you'd like to mention? Every time I'm put on spot like that, I'm like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I can never think of uh, something mm -hmm. to say. Um, I guess I would just start with looking inward mm. because we're all looking to connect. So can we connect to ourselves? Especially I feel like when we talk about relationships and why relationships oftentimes don't work, it's because we haven't done enough work on our own yet. I feel like you can't be in a successful relationship and love somebody if you don't love yourself first right. and not in the way that is um, self-centered love, but versus, you know, can I look at myself in the mirror and say that I actually like the person that I'm looking at? Am I lying to myself every day about who I am and what I'm trying to be? Um, do I feel uh, self-actualized? Um, there's this hierarchy of needs. It's called the Maslow's hierarchy yeah, of needs. Yeah, are you yeah, familiar yeah. with it? Yeah. Um, but it starts at, you know, those basic needs of like food, clothing, shelter, um, the like most ground level needs. Do you have somewhere to live? Do you have you know your your basic survival needs met? Then we move up you know to safety. You know, are you safe? Do you feel safe? Have you processed that trauma? That's where that goes back to is like the safety. At the end of the day, do you feel hyper vigilant when you're by yourself? Even um, and I can even relate to that because I'm like, okay, my safety needs are still you know being worked on right now because I don't always feel safe. I'm Sometimes I'm in a room and I'm looking around more to make sure that everything's checked and safe before I'm able to really jump in and connect. I always say that I place myself in the room where I feel like I need to be um, to feel safe. Wow. You know, I, I, I never thought about that with the safety. To me, safety was like, you know, doors are locked. Like, like I'm in a hotel room. This is safe. Mm -hmm. But there is also that um, the there 
is a hypervigilance. It's environmental related feel. stuff. Absolutely. It's like, because there's also the fear of like, do you, fit, do you feel safe being alone? Yeah. Right? Because yeah. there are times where I have a roommate in LA and, uh, and she'll leave to, you know, for a couple weeks. So she does stand up also. And I feel anxious. I get like separation anxiety mm-hmm. when she leaves. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is something I need to do. It's not like me and her aren't involved in any way. You know, we're just friends, we're just roommates. But I can feel myself become like, oh, uh, there's a part of my brain that says she's leaving me versus mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. going to do, you know, what she's always done and, and go to work. Because like, you internalize that. Absolutely. And it's the attachment piece. Absolutely. And I don't know what your story is or, you know, what right. you've been through, but like how I was saying, we learn to love the way that we've been loved or the way that we've experienced love and start to perceive that even early on. Yeah. Um, and that goes back to safety. It's, did we feel safe with, you know, who and how we were um, parented or loved or uh, even not just with our parents, but the environments that we're in, you know, mm. in the neighborhoods we live in, do we feel safe? Do we have someone else to connect to outside of our families? Mm. And that sounds like that's kind of somebody for you is that you're able to connect to her in this way and you feel safe with her. Right. So when you're by yourself, that safety sense is threatened. Mm. Um, and mm. so you internalize that as she's leaving me. She doesn't want to be around me. And we even do that with our regular friends. And sometimes, you know, there are jealous friendships and it's kind of like, oh, why are you hanging out with that person right. and not me? Right. You know, I've right. even experienced right. that. And then I'm internalizing it like, oh, did I do something? Oh, my gosh. Why don't they want to hang out with me? But it's like, wait a second. <laughs> they also have their needs that they need to work on. And it's not that she's trying to leave, you know, right. for that reason. Yeah. But, okay, life keeps on going. And that's why you communicate and you check in, too. I love it. I love it. Thank you for being on this episode. We always end every episode with three things. We're going to put you on the spot one more time. <laughs> three things that we're grateful for. And I always go first because it is a putting you on the spot kind of thing. And uh, today I'm grateful for uh, I had a great breakfast this morning. And I, I realized, like, the first meal I have of the day sets up the rest of the meals. Because mm-hmm. if I have a crap breakfast, then... Um, I'm going to eat crap for the rest of the day. If I have a great breakfast, then my body just, I feel sharp. I feel mm-hmm. zoned in. I want to do things. I feel energetic, but not hyper. Um, so I'm grateful that I started off with a, uh, and uh, on top of that, I'm grateful that um, I've been doing intermittent fasting. So like I'll stop eating at 6 PM um, and then I won't eat until at the earliest 6 AM the next morning. Which then, but I, I love that because then I get the best sleep. When I stop eating, if I if mm-hmm. I wait till eight, then I find myself waking up in the middle of the night or if I don't eat the right food. So I'm grateful that, you know, I had the discipline to stop eating last night at six. So I got a great. Um, and then I'm grateful for the shows that we've had this week. They're like, this has been great. Like, it's allowed me to meet people like yourself and um, the, the guest I had on uh, earlier, uh, Chris. And it's just... Like, I, I'm grateful for the conversations, the real conversations that I'm, I'm able to have with people that we otherwise wouldn't have had. You know, without this podcast, you and I would have been a handshake and thank you, good night. And uh, I think we took a picture. Did we take a picture? We together? did not. We did no. not take a picture together. <laughs> um, and then that would have been it, you know, versus like now I'm like, now if we feel connected. You know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a shared story there. So I'm grateful for those uh, three things. Um, I am grateful for people always ask, you know, if you look back on your life and, you know, you could change anything, what would it be? And I always say nothing mm. because 
I view, you know, the human experience as many parts, like we are the sum of many parts. And yeah. that was just a part of my chapter. You know, I'm constantly writing and revising this this book that is my life story. And that could be literal and, you know, metaphorical. Mm. One day maybe I'll write the book, but <laughs> there's enough content to go into a few Harry Potter books. Uh, but I'm constantly being reflective. Um, and I'm thankful for the ability to be reflective and um, practice mindfulness mm. uh, and just... I guess look at everything that I've experienced and say thank you uh, and identify myself as resilient. I'm thankful for mm -hmm. resilience mm -hmm. and those factors, the protective yeah. factors for the connections because you might not always remember what someone said or what they looked like or what they did, but you'll remember that they made an impact. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and I'm thankful for this experience as well. Thank you so much, Mia Turner, for Thank coming you. onto the podcast. Is there any way they can find you if they want yeah. to connect with you? Where would you like them to reach out to you? Yeah, so uh, if you go on Psychology Today, my information is on there. I'm listed as um, an MFT associate on there. Dope. Uh, Mia Turner, M-I-A mm -hmm. Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R, -E uh, on Psychology Today. Check her out. Uh, you know, you can check me out, leoflowers.com uh, or leoflowers2000 on Instagram. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please share the podcast, subscribe, give it five stars, leave comments, all those things help. Um, and we will talk to you guys later. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>